Hi everyone, you're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. We're bringing you something a little bit different this week. My name's Daniel Harrigus, I'm the content manager at Strong Towns. Chuck Marone is not doing a podcast this week because he has been on the road, in the air, all over the country, sharing the Strong Towns message and helping to grow our movement. This is the busiest travel season of the year for us. So instead of a Strong Towns podcast, this week you are getting an episode of Upzoned, which is a podcast we launched about a month ago in which our communications director, Kia Wilson, Chuck Marone, and occasional surprise guests take one big story from the week and break it down and discuss it right when you want it now. If you like what you're hearing, you can subscribe directly to future episodes of Upzoned by going to upzoned.strongtowns.org. And we will be back next week with your regularly scheduled Strong Towns podcast. Thanks for listening and keep doing what you can to build Strong Towns. Welcome to Upzoned, your weekly podcast that digs deep into the big stories from the Strong Towns conversation. I'm Kia Wilson here with my friend Chuck Marone. How are you doing, Chuck? Hey, I'm doing fantastic. It's uh, it's kind of uh, you know, stormy here, like the pre-winter storm in Minnesota. Uh, the leaves have not turned because we've had so much rain. So it's it's not. It should be like peak leaf season right now, and it's not. It's just wet and kind of chilly, but. I like it. I'm uh, I'm having a good time. You sound like you have a little bit of a cold. Is that true? I don't think I do. I, okay. I hope it's not my audio. I'm actually feeling pretty good. Just well, got a good. Really sleep last night um, after painting a rental property for a lot of yesterday evening. So I'm, you know, putting in the time to make my town stronger. One bucket of kills at a time. Basically. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Well, this week I actually nominated the story. So I'm going to kind of kick us off. We are talking about a piece from, uh, I believe it was Curbed, called Opportunity Zones, Vital Community Development Tool or Tax Windfall for the Rich. So to sort of get us oriented, let's talk about what Opportunity Zones are. Um, I'm just going to read, do something I don't usually do and read from the article a little bit. The Opportunity Zones program seeks to direct capital to underserved areas of the country, ones in need of an influx of money to jumpstart their economies. It lets investors defer their capital gains taxes and, if requirements are met, forego them entirely if they invest their gains in specific areas designated by governors as Opportunity Zones. So lot right there, I think, set off some alarm bells for Strong Towns readers. I've been getting a lot of emails about what does Strong Towns think of Opportunity Zones. Strong Towns, I think, to some people's eye, reads as like, we love um, bottom-up development. And for some people, that means we oppose any sort of government intervention whatsoever. We're like arch conservatives. To other people, it means that we're crunchy liberals who will only do things that start at the community level and we oppose government for a completely different reason. Um, That's always kind of fun to disabuse people of both notions. But Chuck, tell me a little bit about your take on Opportunity Zones. Have you had a chance to read about them? And how do they fit into our vision for incrementalism? Yeah, I'm sitting in one right now. I don't know if you knew that or not. I didn't know that. Um, Yeah, Brainerd basically like 
Brainerd itself is an opportunity zone. Not, not the whole thing. There's parts that aren't. I had to laugh because my, you know, my part of North Brainerd is an opportunity zone. Uh, the downtown is, and I, I mean, I get some of it. The the poorest neighborhood in town that could really use some investment is not part of the opportunity zone. Um, but all this uh, river frontage, <laughs> where there's some really like ritzy, nice homes, you know, like the the rich doctors live out there. Uh, that's part of the opportunity zone. So I don't, I don't, I can't say that like I get the implementation of it. But you know, the idea is that, and this is, I think, part of this kind of, uh, if we want to say, consensus belief, the 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 Washington Wall Street consensus that. You know, all our cities need is more money. And uh, if we can just get them more money, that great things will happen. And so this is like the Wall Street version of that. Let's take these people who have had enormous capital gains from, you know, selling their Facebook stock options or, you know, what have you, their, their you know, Wall Street money. And let's let them do good with the world. You know, let, let's let them be part of that invisible hand and uh, you know, take their greed and channel it to like good things. So if you put your money in a local city and invest it, build a new building, build an apartment building, uh, you know, build a house, um, you know, build an office complex, whatever it is, if you do it in one of these opportunity zones, you don't have to pay capital gains tax right away. So you can defer that. And the longer you hold that investment, the more those taxes are deferred. And the gains that you get from this new investment uh, are also going to be untaxed. I find it to be, um, as a policy tool, I see, you know, some, I, I think it's like mostly benign. I don't think it's going to have the effect people, like the magic effect people think it will. And I actually think there's some downside on the ground, but I find like the premise of it to just be kind of silly. Um, you know, the idea that our cities are robbed of capital, if they could only get more, you know, access to more money, that there's all kinds of amazing things that need to be done. We're just, you know, lack of funds is the problem. Lack of funds is not the problem. In fact, we have in some ways way too much sloshing around in our cities, inducing some really horrible projects. Um, we need to become like better about what we do with our money. It's, it's not a lack of money. That is the, you know, that's the problem. Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about this from a slightly different lens. I didn't read the opportunity zones um, description and think silly. I read it and thought this is kind of dangerous because it feels like in some ways, like the most pernicious forms of tax increment financing that we see at the local level blown up over a federal scale. And when I dug into it, I also looked at my particular city, like it sounds like you did, Chuck, to see if I was in an opportunity zone. I am not. But um, many of the neighborhoods in St. Louis that are, are neighborhoods like, for instance, it's called Van Deventer Avenue. That's the site of our IKEA. <laughs> That's the site of a lot of very large, um, like, megaplexes and big box retail. So it meets the opportunity zone criteria, which to be specific is that the neighborhood has to have either a poverty rate higher than 20% or a median family income in the tract to be less than 30% um, or excuse me, 80% of the state or the municipal region. But that's because not a lot of people live there and these funds are not restricted simply to residential projects. So I can see these being used very easily and very quickly um to 
continue to build more of the same big box retail, big transformative developments that probably would have happened anyway in this corner, to be clear. Um, But it comes with the added benefit of now the investors don't have to pay on their capital gains. I don't see that as a win for my city, especially when the things they're going to build are not going to do much to enhance our urban fabric and make it more fine grained. Well, let's break this down into two two things because the first part is the, um, you know, the offense over the tax break, and I think we've got to be clear that these are this is not a break from local taxes. Right. So these places will all pay their property tax, their sales tax, all this. This is just a break from capital gains tax, basically like investment taxes. So you know, if you are someone, and I, I think this is a fine point of view if you have it. If you're someone who thinks that, you know, that's just a huge break for rich people, um, or if you, you know, are one of a tiny minority of people, certainly not partisan Democrats or partisan Republicans who care about the federal budget, um, you know, then then this is an issue for you. We seem to be comfortable running, you know, trillion dollar deficits. I've like given up worrying about the budget because nobody else cares. And, you know, I'm kind of like powerless to do anything about it anyway. So you, you do have this whole like federal policy mess. And, you know, I, I think that that is sick and broken and like I, but like I said, I, I don't feel like I can do anything about it. The other thing you bring up though is interesting. Um, you know, the idea that what is going to be built is not going to be scaled well to our neighborhood. Um, I, 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 I think this like pernicious uh, conjoining of big capital projects with neighborhoods that are supposed to be, you know, poorer, uh, have higher rates of poverty, are more, you know, in need of investment, has that potential to be really destructive. Most of these neighborhoods, and we look at this all the time at Strong Towns, most of these neighborhoods are starved for capital investment. The capital investment they need is like someone to fix the sidewalks, someone to, uh, you know, put the streetlights uh, in good repair, someone to pick up the garbage, someone to, you know, mow the uh, the city park. These are not either expensive or sexy or Wall Street, you know, appealing kind of investments, but they're really high returning investments. A, a flood of cash into opportunity zones is not going to result in that. It it might result in huge splashy projects. It might result in a lot of displacement and a lot of like change in that neighborhood. But I don't think it solves any like of the underlying problems, which like I said, are not lack of capital problems. They're lack of focus. Yeah. Well, I want to push back on one thing you said about, of course, all these people will pay their local property taxes. There's nothing in the Opportunity Zones program that precludes people from also going to their city. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just to be clear on, no, on I, that before we get yeah. emails. Um, and and there's no doubt that will happen oh, yeah. too, right? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Like in St. Louis, they're going to be getting a historic development tax credit and tax abatement <laughs> and um, probably right. Opportunity Zone um, capital gains waivers to boot. Um, But I'm interested in the idea of 
that you're talking about, Chuck, about that the size of the money pot is the problem. That's something we've talked a lot about on Strong Towns. And at some moments, I feel like you've said something to the effect of, you know, you would support higher spending in certain areas, but you would want that money to be spent on a large variety of small projects across a wide expanse in a Strong Towns fashion, iterating as we go, um, spending that money in stages rather than building one stadium and calling it a day. Opportunities on spending could be used to build a stadium. Let's be clear. Um, What do you think a better Opportunity Zones project or program would look like? Would it be directed at targeted neighborhoods as this one was? Would is would the gover- governors have discretion over what those would be, and how would the money be spent? That's a really, th- th- I think that's a really tough set of questions, and it's not one that I, I, I'll acknowledge that I've given a lot of thought to. You know, we we get asked a lot to engage on federal policy levels. Um, you know, it's, it's, I've got, I'm not trying to like brag or anything, but I've got like a couple of congressmen that text me. <laughs> Um, like my personal text, like, you know, I'm going into this committee. What do you think? And I'm like, I, I don't know. Like I, I, I feel like trying to steer neighborhood level investments from Washington, DC is like trying to steer like a, you know, a battleship with like a oar on the back of it. You know, it just like, you're not, you're, you're, you're not doing anything that is really going to change the ship at all. And I don't know, uh, that's a bad analogy because what, what the federal stuff will do is actually like pour over the neighborhood and screw it up and not allow it to like organically um, evolve and, and change. It's just going to be like, here's, you know, here's, it, it's, it's the all at once to a finished state kind of problem. Right. You know, you come in and you're like, let's transform this place, huge amounts of capital. And then you walk away and yeah, you may have lifted that particular place up. Did you help the people that were there? Or are you just doing like slash and burn kind of development? Um, You know, where now your problem is in five other places, but this one works. I, I, if, if, if I'm doing this at a federal policy level, I, I don't really have a good sense of how you get the type of small scale investments you need in, you know, these, these poorer, more struggling neighborhoods. I, it's, it's not like you, I mean, look at the taxes that the federal government collects, uh, capital gains tax. Okay. We don't need the huge wall street money sloshing through these neighborhoods. Exactly the opposite income tax. A lot of people in these neighborhoods are not paying high levels of income tax. Um, you know, what tariffs I, I like, what are, how are we using tax policy to get these investments that we want? I, I don't get it. And here's where, as I'm talking through this, I feel like one of the uh, like incorrect premises that it just underlies this is that poor neighborhoods or struggling neighborhoods need rich people to come in and save them. Mm. Um, and your rich people could be, you know, uh, wealthy people from Wall Street with a tax break, or it could be like the federal government going and, and soaking the rich and then putting that money into poor neighborhoods. I think both of those premises are false. I think they're not true. I think what what these neighborhoods need is to be able to keep their own capital and direct it 
to things that would benefit them. And if just like that happened, mm. it was a very like simple kind of policy change. If that could happen, these places would be one, they would explode. They would be wonderful. And they would be wonderful in a way that people there would want them to be wonderful. Not the way, you know, someone looking at a pro forma in a tower in Manhattan is going to think, you know, pays off. I think that's a great insight. And, you know, it reminds me because that sort of policy doesn't exist in most places in America. Most places that are disempowered do not have the level of local control over their own money that you're describing. But every once in a while, you will see, of course, like anything, a big federal program generate a good result. But I wrote about one for um, Strong Towns that was a community development block grant had been given to a neighborhood in Northside St. Louis, and they generated a really humble, fantastic project um, that basically they were installing a mural in a park, and they decided that they wanted the citizens of the community to participate in the mural, and then in the mural painting. And then they had nonprofits come out to serve those people who were painting because they expressed some needs and they listened to them and it grew organically from the bottom up. Was that because they got that little bit of seed money from the community development block grant necessarily? No. If that money had come locally, it would have had the same effect. What made that project powerful was the initiative and um, energy of the people who live there and that it was driven by the people who live there. It's kind of funny because the one, like if you, if you told me, um, we're going to wipe out like all the federal government programs that try to do things at the local level, except you keep one, one name, like the one program that you would keep, it wouldn't be the tiger block grants. It wouldn't be anything in HUD. The one that I would keep would be the, uh, the local community stuff that the national endowment of the arts does. Mm. And they do it in, in, it's it's almost like the tiny nature of their budget and the tiny nature of their staff uh, has created this kind of uh, kind of culture of being small, nimble, and flexible. And I think they've done you know of of all the like federal programs that I've seen do productive things. I'm not suggesting that you know it's it's it, these are great investments or investments that couldn't be done at the local level but that's the one that has like tried to at least respect the fine grained nature of neighborhoods um so yeah i'm 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 with you i think it's it's clearly easier uh to direct them you know when the the the, the people doing it are in charge of the of the money yeah. right um and this is this is the problem I'm not going to argue that like South Brainerd looking out my window here is not starved of capital. It, 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 these houses need investment. Um, you know, this neighborhood is struggling. Uh, the people there are are struggling in many ways. Uh, but the idea that somehow, you know, wall street money coming in and building a big apartment building or putting in like a big box store, is somehow going to make the lives of people here better. I, I just find that kind of ridiculous. Um, you know, that I go back to Paul Stewart in Oswego, who I interviewed a couple of years ago on the Strong Towns podcast. And, you know, he talked about just getting private capital off the sidelines. And I, I, I do think that that is a, a bigger, uh, has a, it's going to have a bigger impact than anything we can do from, DC or, or from Wall Street, uh, 
the idea that if I have faith in my neighborhood, I will go out and put in that sweat equity to repaint my house. I will go out and plant those shrubs and make my front yard look good. I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go borrow the money to re-roof the house because I have faith in the direction of the neighborhood that these small little investments that I make in my place are going to result in the place having more value, myself like being better off, the, the neighborhood being better off. If the neighborhood's in decline because you know the, the, the city doesn't maintain the street, the city doesn't maintain the sidewalks, all the you know, streetlights are off, the only love we get from the city is a patrol car coming through once a day, you know, kind of sinister looking. why would I invest in that neighborhood? Even if I live there and and love the people around me, like it's just a bad investment. I think we can do more good in the world by getting, you know, those individual small investments off the sidelines than, than anything we can do having someone big come in. Yeah. I think that's a great and challenging insight. And I'm curious to see how people listening react. You can always email us your responses to our conversations and join the conversation too um, by emailing team at strongtowns.org or get on the Strongtown Slack. There are hundreds of Strongtowns advocates on there at any given time talking about these tricky things. So that's strongtowns.org slash Slack. So let's go to the down zone. I want to hear a little bit about what you've been reading, listening to, watching. Last week, you told me a little bit about getting weepy at Hamilton. Chuck, have you had any other moving artistic experiences in the last week? No, nothing quite, nothing quite up to that scale. Although I think people will sympathize that you know, now that I have gone, I've allowed myself to listen to the, the soundtrack and uh, you just walk around with like Hamilton songs in your head, like all hours of the day and Constantly. night. It's great yeah, music it's a- to run to, by the way. I've like, oh, yeah. I, I don't doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I almost gave up on the value of everything by Mariana Mazzucato. Uh, it got good all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm like sprinting to finish it. I think I'll be done with it today. Certainly by, you know, certainly by tomorrow I'll be done with it. Um, really it's, it actually started to get interesting when they talked, she started to talk about GDP and how we, um, I've gotten a little bit of this before, like the happiness index and all that, but she got like deeply technical into like, here are the things that go into GDP and used to, and now don't, I'll give you one like quick example. Um, I knew this, but I didn't know it in this way. So if you, um, if you, uh, own a house, uh, GDP, uh, factors in your mortgage payment as you like paying rent to yourself. Hmm. And it didn't used to do that. It used to be like an asset that you bought that essentially like depreciated. It wasn't counted in GDP Um, to kind of goose the GDP or to make the economy look bigger than it is. And actually to create uh, kind of a a demand or an incentive for more housing investment, we started to include it in these statistics that we track. And so now you buy a house, you pay your mortgage, um, that's not like you paying a debt. Um, that is you paying rent to yourself, which is like a magical way to take non-productive things and make them into magically things that, uh, grow the economy. Hmm. Um, yeah, it, 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 this book is full of like little things like that, that are like, oh, that is so like tricky and, and pernicious and distorting. Yeah. Yuck. It's like saying you're yeah. still a student as long as you're making a student loan payment. You're learning things exactly. every month. <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. Yep. Well, and and counting like 
you know, you look at being a student and you're like, I take out this loan. Uh, I spend the money on my college education. Like that's a transaction. But now I have to like pay for that for years. That in GDP terms should be like negative. It's debt service. Um, if you take it and say, no, that's a pot, you know, that's a positive thing. Uh, now you can count it twice. And basically like we've done that so many times in these numbers. It's just, it makes them silly is what it does. <laughs> oh um, my gosh. You know, yet we, yet we base like all this economic policy on it. So. That's wild. Well, my, yeah. my entry into this conversation this week is also something that makes me a little infuriated. <laughs> I It's a little teaser for something I'm actually going to be writing up for the site soon. I had the opportunity to interview a guy named William Nodelsater, whose name I'm probably mispronouncing. He um, was the best-selling author of a book called Bitter Brew, which was about the Anheuser-Busch family. Not surprisingly, he is from St. Louis. And his follow-up is about a guy named Harley Earl, who was the chief um, stylist and designer for General Motors in the rise of the tail fin era of the car, when we made the leap from being a country that drove you know, Henry Ford's Tin Lizzie, the most functional, practical car that you could buy, to buying new cars every three years and always chasing a new trend. He you know, grew up in LA, and he decided that every American had the appetite to like live like a movie star. And the way that he paints the portrait about, you know, at Strong Towns, we talk all the time about how the growth Ponzi scheme spread through the built environment, how the Federal Highway Act um, paved way more roads than we ever needed in an era when, you know, 10% of our roads were paved and everything else was gravel. Um, he sort of paints the other side of the picture, which is how did we get so obsessed with cars um, as a culture that we decided we needed to make a huge part of our spending um, be devoted to new chrome-plated Cadillacs every three, four years. And it's a really fascinating story and also makes me furious as someone who is not immune to the power of good design and can recognize that maybe if I had been coming up in that era as opposed to in the era that's been devastated by the car, I would find that attractive. Right. So look out for that on the site soon. Very interesting. It reminds me, yesterday I, I picked up my oldest daughter from, uh, from dance. And I know you've, you've ridden in my car before I drive an old, uh, it's 2004. So I don't think it's too old. I bought it when she was born, uh, oh, wow. orange Honda element. And, um, she thinks it's the ugliest car in the world. And she's <laughs> always on my case. And like last night when I picked her up, she said, dad, can you get a new car? And I'm like, why? She goes, cause it's so ugly. She said, I would wave to my friends, but I feel like I'm in this ugly car. And so I told her, I'm like, you know, look, kid, it's got 304,000 miles. It runs fine. You know, it's been paid off for 10 years. Do you know how much I'd have to spend to get a new car every month? Um, and she's starting to get to where she gets money now because she has to pay her own like cell phone bill. So oh. I'm like, you know, you're paying 20 bucks a month for your cell phone. Um, yeah, this would be like $400 a month. She's like, Really? So it's one of those good, like, I think by the time we got home, she appreciated the old, uh, the old junker car a little bit more. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, I, I hear you. That'd be interesting. I can't wait to see it. Yeah, thanks so much. Well, that's what we've got for you today. Um, we always take requests for topics to cover in Upzone, so be feel free to shoot those to us on Slack or at team at strongtowns.org. Appreciate you listening and keep doing what you can to build a strong town. 